0: From APM, this is the American Radio Works podcast. I'm Stephen Smith. It was just this incredible mixture of people, all of whom had been through tremendous struggles in their lives and
1: had got to college. That is Rob McGinley Myers. He teaches developmental writing at Hennepin Technical College near Minneapolis. Developmental writing is also known as remedial writing. Remedial classes are for students who are in college but are not yet ready for college-level classes, which is typically determined by a placement test. Nearly two-thirds of all students who enroll in community college are not college-ready in math and or English. And of these, 50% place two or more levels below college-ready in at least one subject area. What I started
0: to realize was that just getting there was this tremendous thing that they'd accomplished. But they were, by the standards of the test that they'd taken
1: when they started college, way below college-level material. McGinley-Meyer says that teaching developmental English courses has given him insight into how students' experiences in grades K through 12 can affect their ability to learn throughout their lives. Many of his students told him that at some point in their schooling, they were made to feel stupid by a teacher or another adult, and that feeling stunted their growth as learners. McGinley Myers was troubled by these stories and decided to interview his students to learn more about how to help ease the transition to community college. McGinley Myers sat down with ARW senior correspondent Emily Hanford, who is working on a documentary about developmental education that will be released next fall. Emily started off by asking him how he got into teaching developmental writing classes. I'd been working in radio
0: for a while and the economy had just crashed and a lot of the underwriting money was drying up. And I was I was nervous about, you know, whether I was still going to have a job in a year. And a friend of mine told me that there were a ton of jobs teaching English at these community and technical colleges in the Twin Cities and that I should just try it. And so I decided to try it. And what I found at the time was that the class that needed to be taught was the lowest level composition class at the college.
2: So let me just stop you for a second. So the lowest level composition class, this is like a remedial class, not really a college level class, but a class that students would test into when they came to the community college. They would take a test that would show that they didn't quite have college level writing skills yet. So they'd be put into this basic level remediation class. And that's the class you taught.
0: That's, that's right. And at first, I wondered if it was going to be a really hard class to teach because I didn't feel like I knew my grammar that well. And what I discovered was that the students in this class were from all over the world. Um, there's a huge West African population in Brooklyn Park where I was teaching. Um, so I had a ton of students from Africa. I had students from China and El Salvador and Mexico and also a lot of students from rural areas and students from the inner city. And I just got them writing things about their own life experience. And I felt like these were some of the most amazing people that I'd ever met.
2: The students that you're teaching in this remedial class, what what we know about remedial education at colleges across the country is that the The majority of students who are starting at community colleges are going into some sort of remedial class, which is a class that they pay for and that they spend time in but doesn't give them college credit. So they're not really in college or they're not fully in college because they have to typically get through some reading and writing and math classes first. And what we also know from national research is that students who start in these remedial classes, most of them get stuck there and they never get a college degree. So these are the students that you're working with. You're working with the population that there's increasing focus on as we're trying to get more and more people to get college degrees in this country. We're stuck. (laughs) There's this, like, uh, plug in the pipeline because so many people are going into remedial education, and once you're in remedial education, you mostly don't get out. What have you learned as an instructor about, first of all, why so many people end up in remedial ed?
0: Well, I believe that... uh and I came to this belief after having my students write about their life experience over and over again. Um, And a lot of them would write about experiences they had in school. Um, And so what I started to believe was that a lot of these students were unsuccessful students primarily because they found school extremely stressful, that they experienced a lot of anxiety about school, Or that they'd had some traumatic experience that just caused them to feel sort of generalized anxiety. And that those two things were causing them to do poorly on tests and especially do poorly in writing because they were just too anxious to uh, have the level of focus that they needed. In order to do well at those tasks which require a ton of focus Um, and so what I started to try to do was to design a class that was primarily about stress reduction and so thinking about stress reduction thinking about where stress comes from and then also having them write about that topic using their own life experiences as examples
2: There's a couple of issues in here. One is the the way that students get into remedial education. And this is kind of being investigated across the country. So most students get in by taking some sort of test. Uh, The most common one these days is called the Accuplacer test. So one question is, is that doing an accurate job? So it sounds like many of your students, this test is usually taken on the computer. And uh, that many of your students are, get really anxious about this test and you think that they don't perform well. So is that, are you saying that you think that many of your students shouldn't be in a basic level class or is it something else?
0: Well, I mean, it's a question of what are we trying to assess with that test? The fact that that test is what we use to assess students for a writing class is absurd because there's no writing on the test. It's a multiple choice test. And so we're, we're not assessing people's ability to write. We're assessing their knowledge of grammatical terminology, essentially, or their knowledge of grammatical structures. And so most of my students, some of whom turn out to be great writers, experience that test as a diagnosis of stupidity. Like they feel like, oh, I took the test and it said I'm stupid. Now I have to take the stupid class. Um, And I think most of them, like if that was the only time that ever happened to them in their life, that would not be a big deal. But most of them have had the experience in the past of being told or given the impression that they were stupid um, at various stages of their education. And so it's just one more example of that. Like you don't belong here. You're not smart enough to be here. And like one of the things I've been teaching my students about is the difference between fixed mindset and growth mindset and all the research into that. And when I teach my students about this, what a lot of them say is, I feel like I used to have a growth mindset, and then like this thing happened that caused me to have a fixed mindset. And the thing happening is often being told or being put in a situation where they feel like they're stupid.
2: And, and so, and these these are experiences they had in school, K through twelve.
0: Exactly. For example, for a lot of them, it's being labeled as uh, learning disabled, or being removed from the the classroom for various reasons. Um, so, like students who go through ESL in the high schools often experience that as like somewhat traumatic, like that they felt like they were treated as though they were stupid because they didn't speak English as well as the other students. Uh, I have students who have ADHD who, you know, were put on various medications because different medications had different side effects, and they felt like they were lab rats. Um, And then at school, you know, they were, like, pulled out of the classroom and put in, you know, a special ed class, which made them feel stupid. So I decided to start interviewing my students about these experiences because I want to be able to share their stories And uh, the the student whose story first really made an impact on me was this student named Ada, who uh, her family's from Laos. She's Hmong, and they came over to the Twin Cities during the Hmong migration after the Vietnam War. She was born in the United States and grew up here, but her mother didn't speak any English at all when she was growing up. And she went to a uh, grade school um, near Edina, which is kind of a nice suburb of Minneapolis, and walked in the first day of kindergarten and was the only non-white student in the class and just felt completely out of place. And she said, the teacher asked her that day, are you sure you're in the right class? And she took that to mean, like, I don't belong here. I don't belong here. And she's five years old. And then they they did, you know, the classic kindergarten experiment where they put um, seeds in a cup of dirt um, and watch the seeds grow
2: yeah we have actually a piece of tape of this so she tells she's telling you this story about when she was in kindergarten and there's a science lesson and the kids are planting seeds and the teacher asks the kids to put some dirt in cups and then come to her when they're ready for the seeds Let- let's play that tape
3: you know i was like the first one done i remember you know and um but I was so scared. I was so scared that I didn't go up to her and ask her. You know, I went, I kind of waited till everybody went. You know, and then after that I went. So I finally went to her and said, you know, you know, I'm I'm done. And she, she just told me to go sit down. She told me I already gave you the seeds. I'm like, no, you didn't. You know, and she go just go sit down. So then I was like, I was kind of shocked when she said that. You know, so I'm like, okay, you know, so I sat my flower pot down with all the other all the other rest, right. You know, a few weeks later, you know, we went back and go checking our flowers. Everybody had beautiful flowers except for me. I had like some dirt. That's it, you know. And the worst thing about it is that Miss Bayman, she came up to me and she just kind of chuckled. So I, I felt bad. I, I was, uh, I, I thought that was my fault, honestly, you know. So that was it. Hmm. And I think from there on, I just kind of like shut myself down. I think that's why now today I have um, like, I can't explain what I really want to (laughs) say, you know, because of that experience. So many of us can remember a
2: bad experience like this in school. So tell us more about why and how this had such a big impact on Ada. It must have been the first in a kind of series of experiences that turned her off to school.
0: Well, right. Yeah, I think that was just the first experience and that kind of set the tone. And then, you know, I think students like her have repeated experiences like that. And maybe it might even be, you know, you have a traumatic experience like that and you start to look for evidence that that thing you believed about yourself is true. You know, like if you have an experience that makes you feel stupid, you start to look for more evidence that maybe you are stupid and it might become a self-fulfilling prophecy. Um, I think students like Ada are in a way like, I mean, they get to college and they're treated as though they're stupid, even though they have overcome tremendous anxiety just to be there.
2: I think one of the important things that Ada talks about in her tape that we just heard is that after that experience with the kindergarten teacher, she shut down. She says, I shut myself down. And I think this is really important, because I think what happens to some kids, a lot of kids in school, is that some things or series of things happen that shut them down. And then what starts to happen is they fail to acquire the kinds of skills that they need to get to the end of high school and be considered college ready. But this is an interesting dilemma because then they're coming to the college and they're taking a test and it's showing that they're not college ready. And they really might not have the skills that one would need to succeed possibly in a philosophy 101 class or an economics 101 class. So the question is what to do about that.
0: Well, and that's sort of what I've been tasked to do by my college. I uh, asked for some time off to work on this project, where essentially, what I'm going to do is interview um students at the what we call the developmental level,
2: so that's another term for remedial
0: right. We're going to interview those students or I'm going to interview those students, and then I'm also going to interview everybody who is part of their experience of entering the college to try to figure out what are the various ways that we could help these students reduce their stress, reduce their anxiety about college, so that the skills that they do have can shine without being uh, obscured by that anxiety and that fear of failure that so many of them arrive at college with.
2: So the hypothesis here is that the continuing anxiety is preventing them from acquiring the skills they need to be successful in college,
0: yeah, and you know, I keep thinking, so I used to work at the writer's Almanac, um that was the radio job I had primarily before I was a teacher.
2: This is uh for public radio listeners on often in the mornings Garrison Keeler, the writer's Almanac,
0: yeah, and I remember researching a period in Ernest Hemingway's life when he had gone he'd volunteered. To be a part of World War II, sort of as a journalist, but he sort of took part because he like wanted to experience like the battle. And when he came home, he said something about how he felt like he wasn't as good a writer as he was before he was on the battlefield because it was it was as though he the noise of the war had deafened him and he couldn't hear the music of language as well. And I sort of feel that way about a lot of my students. Like, they've been through these traumatic experiences. And so when you have that much stress in your life, it can be hard to be quiet enough to hear what you need to hear in the language in order to use it the way that we want them to use it in these very specific ways.
2: Let's go to another clip of tape, because you have um, another student that you've interviewed named Shoshana. So tell us about her.
0: So... Shoshana is a fascinating student because from the very first time she opened her mouth, she was clearly brilliant. Like, um, And she would talk a mile a minute and have incredibly insightful things to say. And um, she was labeled, she had an IEP for, for special ed.
2: That's an individualized education plan. And, 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 and it's meant to be helpful, and I think it is for a lot of people. It, it often means that you get extra resources and extra help um, to help you learn. But it can also be a label that makes you feel like you're different and you're other and you're stupid.
0: And I think that's the way that she experienced it. And she experienced it after she had been bullied by some girls in her school. They would um, lock her in the bathroom and tell her she couldn't leave until she fought with one of them. And then later one of these girls came up behind her and just cracked her head against the concrete. Um, And what she uh, later realized was that she had post-traumatic stress from that experience. But the result of those experiences was that she just became an out-of-control middle schooler and she would do things like get into a fight with a student in the art room and then throw all the pottery on the floor that they had all just made. Um, And so she was labeled as having oppositional defiance disorder, and they eventually sent her to an alternative school.
2: She, She describes this in her interview with you and all of the trauma that was going on for her in school and all of the violence and chaos. And she begs her mom she wants to leave the school. And, you know, it all results in she basically says she never really learned anything in school. She just wasn't able to learn because of all this other stuff. So here she is talking about that. When I say that I haven't learned anything in a calm matter in 6 years, I mean that because I went through so much from 12 to 18. And I was moving and mom
3: and it was just all of this and I ended up in special ed and when I finally when I finally got myself together, it was too late.
2: So what does she mean by it was too late?
0: I think what she means is, at that point, she had been shunted into a sidetrack of the educational system, where children are not expected to do any work in school anymore. She describes a classroom where um, they were given packets that they could work on, but they didn't have to work on, and the teacher was essentially there to make sure that they weren't um, being violent towards one another. And she would just sit on her phone and text uh, with friends pretty much the whole day. And she said that the only reason she was going to school at that point was because her mom said if she didn't, she would take away her phone. And then around her senior year, she suddenly started to get angry about it. And she said, you know, like, I don't understand how you people think that you're teaching us anything. You're teaching us how not to function in the world. And she essentially turned around and made sure that she got her high school degree and, you know, went to college, went straight to college from there.
2: So she ends up in college and she ends up uh, where a lot of students end up, which is she she hasn't learned a lot in her K through 12 education. She hasn't gotten those skills. So I imagine she takes the test and she doesn't test well. So she ends up in your class. So then what?
0: So I set up the class in such a way so that I was teaching them all of the research into why students like them tend to not be successful in school. And what she started to bring into class was research that she had done into things like the school-to-prison pipeline um, and the idea that a lot of, especially African-American students, but students from backgrounds of poverty, wind up in situations like hers where they're essentially just being held in a room you know, not expected to do any kind of academic work, not challenged in any way. And then as soon as they get out of school, they tend to get into trouble with the law and wind up in prison. And so she would uh, tell me about, you know, things that she was reading about that and talking about how maybe she didn't want to be a social worker, maybe she wanted to start a school. And I feel like she is going to be 100% successful with the path that she's on, because, I mean, she's one of the most articulate people that I've ever uh, talked to about this topic.
2: So this is the question then. Here in the United States, we have this educational system that provides all kinds of chances. And compared to other countries in the world, we have a system that allows basically anyone to go to college. But the question is, are they really getting a second chance when they go to college? So most of them who are going to community college are ending up in these remedial classes. So someone like Shoshana, the idea here is that the remediation is supposed to be helping her gain all those skills she didn't get in school, so she can then go on and be successful in college. And what the data shows is that that doesn't happen for most people. Do you know what's happening with Shoshana?
0: Um, no. I, I mean, right at this moment, I don't know. I know that she was planning to take another semester of college. Um, but th- actually, there's an important part of her story that I left out, which is what caused her to kind of have her wake-up moment, like, I want to actually do something with my life. And what it was was she got involved with drugs and went to a treatment center for a month, um, essentially for rehab, but she said that it was primarily uh, just you know, getting psychological help um which she said made a huge difference for her and that she came back from that program feeling much better and what i feel would really help these students a lot of these students is instead of focusing just on the skills and like if you can't hack these skills you know you you're just not college material instead of focusing primarily on the skills if we focused in addition to the skills on helping them heal from various traumatic experiences because their lives have been incredibly stressful. And when your life has been incredibly stressful, that stress continues to persist unless it's been healed.
2: Do you think that colleges can really do what you're describing?
0: I think they can do it if they want to have much higher completion rates. Like, I think it's the best model for having those completion rates. So if, like, if we believe that College access should be as wide open as it is right now in the United States. I think we need to meet those students where they're at rather than excluding them because
1: they aren't at where we think they need to be. That was Rob McGinley Myers, an English teacher at Hennepin Technical College near Minneapolis. He was speaking with ARW senior correspondent Emily Hanford. You can find out more about McGinley Myers' work at our website, AmericanRadioWorks.org. You'll find more podcasts there about issues in higher ed and K-12 education, and you can browse an archive of more than 100 documentary projects. We'd also love to hear what this podcast made you think about and whether you might share it with others. Did it change your mind about remedial education? Let us know at AmericanRadioWorks.org. Click on the About page and scroll down to Share Your Impact Story. We are on Facebook at American.RadioWorks and on Twitter at AMRadioWorks. Support for American Radio Works comes from Lumina Foundation, the Spencer Foundation, and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. I'm Stephen Smith. Thanks for listening. This is APM.